And thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Manshramani shares the audio portion of his February 17, 2021 webinar discussion with Emily de la Brere. Thanks everybody for joining. Uh, I am thrilled today. I have Emily uh, with me here, as you can see, <laughs> who is a co-founder of Horizon Advisory, um, a firm that tracks a lot of different really interesting forms of data to come up with some thinking, uh, unique thinking, I think, uh, about China, specifically technology standards, et cetera. And so we'll get into that. Uh, before we do, uh, the, the traditional uh, advertisement has to take place here, which was last week I had uh, Commissioner Kevin Warren, a commissioner of the Big Ten, uh, a fascinating story. If you haven't uh, watched the replay, I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, Kevin had a life-threatening car accident at the age of 11, which changed his life forever and sort of brought out this sense of grit and determination. And he's infused that into everything he's done. He was the most senior uh, black professional in the National Football League, was COO of the Minnesota Vikings, uh, built stadiums, really fascinating story. Uh, and then of course he's navigating the Big Ten Conference during a pandemic, uh, during social justice upheaval and, and a whole bunch of other things as well as you know compensation of student athletes, which is a big topic. Um, before that, we had uh, Gilman Louie, uh, Gilman uh, founding uh, CEO of InQtel, which was the venture capital arm of the CIA. Uh, and he had some really fun stories, including uh, the CIA director Tenet leaning over uh, and telling him, actually, we have better toys than you have at Hasbro. And uh, uh, Gilman took him up on the offer and started a venture capital operation for the CIA. Um, he also is a uh, venture capitalist today, investing in lots of really interesting companies. And there were some good tidbits there. He also actually had a lot to say about US-China technology standards uh, and relationships there. So again, if you haven't seen that replay, it might be worth it. Uh, and we began this fall, or sorry, this 2021 series uh, with Elliot Higgins, who is the founder of really what you can only call as a collective. Uh, it's not really an organization per se. It's a, it's a group of citizen journalists, uh, individual researchers, and other uh, you know, honestly, do-gooders that are trying to connect the dots using technology, using geolocation, using social media and open media sources to identify developments before they are fully understood. And so he was the first, he and his group at, at Bellingcat were the first group to identify Malaysia 17 was shot down by the Russians, not the Ukrainians. They were the first group to identify uh, the use of chemical weapons in Syria, et cetera. And they do it just with open source and social media. Um, and he's got a book that's coming out actually next month. Um, so we talked a little bit about that. And then of course, uh, there's the, the traditional advertisement, which is for my book, uh, Think for Yourself, which is available everywhere books are sold. Um, and so uh, if you haven't seen it uh, or re read it, I'd encourage you to do so. Um, and with that, we're here with Emily. So Emily, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So let's begin with your background, Emily. So you uh, speak Chinese. Um, let's start with that interest. Where'd that come from? What, what was the sort of motivation for China? It, like most things in my background, um, is really a series of accidents, which may or may not be fortunate ones. Um, I started taking Chinese relatively early in grade school because my school offered two options. There was French, which I already spoke, and yep. Chinese, which was exciting and exotic and different. And so obviously I took Chinese um, yep. and then became trapped in studying it. And where did you grow up? Where, where was home? New York. 
Okay. So you studied Chinese as a grade schooler? Yes. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and there's you know, some like really necessary bit of self-loathing you then need to spend the next 10 or however many years like writing characters over and over and over yep. um, in the college dining hall. But apparently that's a bit of self-loathing that I have. Yep. yep. I, I did it myself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Decades ago, but I do remember that. Um, so, so tell me more about your background. So you grew up with a, a family in New York City. You sort of, uh, you know, more about things that might have influenced how you took the path you took. Yeah, I think, I mean, I see it now as like a highly circuitous path um, in which you had Chinese as kind of this language thread and then otherwise much of probably like the years that we consider influential for our academic experience, um, I spent very focused on competitive running and that was really the only thing I cared about Um, with some caveats in there. I did go to school. but I ran in college. I was very focused on that. I was taking Chinese, but had no pretense of being or ever thinking I would be a geopolitics person, let alone a China geopolitics or whatever it is person. Um, I wanted to obviously run in the immediate. And then I thought I would be a journalist or a Marine officer. Oh, interesting. Uh, laid plans. Uh, hasn't happened yet on either front. Um, but a range of hiccups, a range of other opportunities. And I found myself down the road buried in Chinese primary sources really all the time. Um, and you know, I like to think without a lot of priors that had I been more focused on you know, this is the path I was gonna take might have colored my analysis. Um, and I was spending all my time reading Chinese sources about power and about global power and about competition. And that led me from an ideological perspective to feel very strongly that China constituted a threat and a new kind of threat. And that accompanying that came a new model for international interaction that wasn't being documented. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And therefore I felt at the same time, the opportunity and the obligation to document it, if you will, Um, which I will play as an ideological thing, but also has its fair share of selfishness. Um, I'm pretty fundamentally anti-authoritarian and yep. establishment and this gave me the chance to be yep. that in a quasi-professional room. Yeah, no, that's fabulous. What's, what I find fascinating is this sort of interest as a you know potential military individual, as well as a potential journalist, which combines actually very nicely into the path you've got, right? So the journalistic instinct is to connect dots and uncover truths, if you will. Um, and I find that fascinating. I actually thought of becoming a journalist at some point um, and then having this sort of national security twist to what you're doing as well is, is, uh, is awesome. Uh, so how about Horizon Advisory? Tell us a little bit about that. Where'd that come from? Uh, why'd you start your own operation rather than go work for a multitude of organizations that would find your work highly valuable? Great question. We'll go back to the anti-authoritarian bit of okay. the last answer that might color a part of it. Um, but I think more fundamentally, I spent you know, the early part of my career more in the national security um, and intelligence community type worlds, but still on the China analysis um, beat. And you spend your time really, you know, looking at what China's doing and it become, or became to me increasingly apparent that this was not purely and not even primarily a military contest. And the military lacked and lacked the tools to address so much of what of the way China competes. Um, and 
that made the more public facing or more commercial or more civilian domain that much more appealing. Um, and combine that with the attempt to introduce new frameworks or models it suggested you know, trying to make this work outside of the traditional institutions. So outside of the government, outside of a big organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Partially because of the siloed nature of, of sort of how some of these organizations are structured. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely a fair assessment. I mean, one of the things probably that drew me most into what has now become the horizon world is looking at Chinese military civil fusion strategy. Yep. And it's just, it's so comprehensive. There's such an overlap in all these different dimensions. And we in our existing model here in the US just don't have a single analytical world or a single organizational framework or set of tools that can you know, properly address the scope or the scale of that. Yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. I think, uh, you know, perhaps in a prior uh, generation in the United States, there was more of that, right? Sort of this grand strategic thinking of, of, of sort of prior days, uh, sort of the great power logic, uh, which I think is becoming more fashionable or sort of coming back into relevance, at least, if not fashion uh, today to sort of think holistically about a rivalry such as the US-China rivalry. Um, so let's, let's turn Emily, to the idea uh, that one of your primary ideas is, is around technology standards, right? That you think the technology standards are, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Trojan horse logic to sort of ex exercise and project authoritarianism at some level, right? So let me let me let you describe it in your language rather than me putting words in your mouth. <laughs> yes, or at least I think they've become that. In the current global operating environment, there the buzzwords really fall off the tongue on this subject. So forgive me if I go in their direction, but standards could be the determinative element of international competition. The primary mode of cross-border interaction in, again, buzzword, the globalized world is exchange, whether that's exchange among countries or among companies or among individuals. And standards are the rules for that, for that exchange. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if you set the rules or set the standards, you have the chance to govern the exchange and therefore to govern the flow of international resources. Mm -hmm. There is probably no greater power in the modern world. So and Make, make it tangible. Give me an example. Well, and that's where like the present moment becomes so pivotal because with the information revolution, we have a whole new set of standards that are being formed to govern a whole new international architecture. Whether that's a super hot topic, exciting thing like 5G or more boring areas like you know, technical standards for the industrial internet of things or for data privacy um, or for digital currencies. And then of course you get other beats of standards can be seen as an area that extend beyond technical standards alone. Um, so laws might figure into this and international laws, international law changes. Um, anything regulating, I mean, it's any rule for these systems of international exchange. Okay, so let's, if I want to be, if I want to pretend that I'm sort of, you know, less informed on these, wouldn't I just say, really, but look, these are multinational organizations that set these standards, right? I mean, you're sort of pointing the finger at China. Have they co-opted these? Like what's going on? Yes, precisely. And that's the thing, right? We, we still have this framework where we see standards and I'm saying we as you know, the US or whatever body, but 
see standards as a fundamentally cooperative, collaborative area um, where countries are working together and companies are working together to permit interoperability. But China sees them as competitive. And to that end, China has absolutely gamed or co-opted international organizations. Mm-hmm. And you see this really across the board. Um, you see this with China marshalling, for example, a whole range of Chinese quote unquote private sector actors in a technical standard setting industry association like five, like 3GPP to vote for a certain telecommunication standard, yep. which is not something that any other player is doing. But China is really like creating an organized united front. And in some cases, this united front also extends to other countries that, for example, you know, through, I don't know what we're really calling it this way, but China's somewhat coercive diplomacy, it's managed to ensure are in its pocket in international organizations and therefore are going to vote for the standard China wants. Mm-hmm. One of the really interesting examples of this asymmetry I see is just simply from like a publication perspective. If you, when you go and you Google, how many standards has the US set in X, Y, or Z? Nothing's gonna come up because that's just like not a question that exists in our framing of standards. These are collaborative, you come to them together. Mm-hmm. But the past two years have seen China publish lists of the ISO or International Standardization Organization standards that are China led, mm-hmm. making a very clear distinction about what is a Chinese standard and what is not a Chinese standard that I've okay. never seen anywhere else. Yeah, and the idea is to sort of compel those more dependent on the Chinese ecosystem to fall into line. So you're part of this digital belt and road or physical belt and road. We're providing infrastructure. You want roads, you want food, you want sort of basic economic support, aid and development, particularly as the US takes a lesser role in your your world. Uh, Maybe you're an African nation, maybe you're a Middle Eastern or Central Asian nation. And therefore the Chinese can come in and say, hey, listen, we're gonna do this, we're gonna help you, but uh, yeah, yeah, this multinational group, we recommend you vote this way. And it doesn't matter for you, you could not care less. You don't have 5G, what do you care about the 5G standards? But what this does is it adds up into an international architecture into which of course all elements of the international system fit that's Chinese government. So Emily, I probably have some some listeners that don't have great technological sophistication, (laughs) Uh, trying to be nice to some of them, but uh, what does that mean if they control 5G? Well, I mean, we hear about this. Well, Huawei. Okay, so if I if we put in Huawei equipment here in the United States, why should we be worried? And there are so many levels of this question. I guess like the way I address it tends to be looking at like the more tactical things that are probably more buzzy in the news, and then this underlying question of information, you know, more strategic information asymmetry. So, what you'll hear about as the threat. Um, is the security threat. The idea that, for example, Huawei or whatever other Chinese electronics or information technology company is going to create a cyber threat is going to spy on the government or lead to paralysis of a necessary US infrastructure, whether that's telecommunications or the electrical grid. Very real problems, like that's really bad. But then you have this next level that's probably worse. And that's the idea that China could, based on establishing this asymmetric presence in international information infrastructures, develop information dominance or superiority, which is to say, can collect information on global exchange or global movement or whatever is transiting along these infrastructures and also can shape that data. Mm -hmm. And 
we live in a world where information is probably the determinative input militarily, economically, socially. So every, this is the old like data's new oil buzzword, like every additional piece of better information that China has lets it benefit along those dimensions. But we also live in a world where our fundamental reality is shaped by information technology and the information environment. So for example, if Beijing is influencing your information network, we were just talking about before this started about Google Maps. Yeah. Say that you know, China can influence whatever the new version of Google Maps is such that I take a certain route. That certain route is gonna have consequences. For example, simple commercial ones that I might bypass one gas station instead of the other. And that gives that gas station an advantage. And then all of those multiply such that not only is China asymmetrically benefiting from these information infrastructures, but it is shaping sure. how we operate in the physical world. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of surveillance capitalism on steroids on a global basis at some level, right? So we've all heard about this sort of internal Chinese social credit scoring and surveillance of their own people. Not to be too grandiose, is this an attempt to have China do this for the world? Absolutely. Or in a different framing, we're so scared of Amazon, but this is precisely the same power Amazon has just in the hands of an authoritarian state that's seeking global dominance. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're gonna come back to standards, I'm sure, throughout our conversation, because I get the sense you care deeply about these. Uh, let's turn to another topic that has to do with US-China interaction um, that's making headlines real time today, rare earths. Um, you know, We saw yesterday uh, some news, the Financial Times, others talking about uh, China investigating ways to perhaps limit uh, or pinch the U.S. when it comes to the use of rare earths for defense purposes. But as we know, rare earths are not used only in defensive applications or defense applications. They're also used in clean energy, magnets, and other alternative energy supporting. So at some level, this is a battle not only for the future of military dominance, but also perhaps for clean energy dominance. And so, I, but wait, I've been told that climate is an area where the U.S. and China can cooperate. So help me understand using rare earths as an example, how this supposed cooperation conflicts with competition and what it means for us. It's amazing, right? How we think we can compartmentalize those. Um, so we'll quickly lean back on the standards thing. Um, okay. I, I often think of China's bid for asymmetric international leverage or coercive power in terms of first establishing asymmetric dependence. So the world depends on China, China, relatively speaking, whereas China, relatively speaking, is independent. That gives you greater leverage over other international players such that you can set standards. Um, so these work together in a mutually reinforcing way and then standards let you lock in your asymmetric dependence. This is a quick overall framing B. But then rare earths are the perfect example of this kind of asymmetric leverage or control of a critical input in a critical supply chain or a range of critical supply chains. China has a natural rare earths monopoly. Since literally the, the founding of the People's Republic of China, yeah. this rare earths monopoly and the power that comes from it has been a national priority. And it's been a national priority, not only in terms of developing and using China's own domestic resources, but also in terms of investing in global resources. So that China can not only benefit from its domestic advantages, but also control the international alternatives. That's a horizontal type integration. At the same time, China pursues a vertical integration. So 
invest in the upstream and the downstream necessities for rare earth production and processing and then ultimate applications. Yep. Which creates a control over rare earths and therefore this critical input to pretty much everything that goes so far beyond what happens if you just look at you know, China's rare earths production versus an internet, another um, global players. Like we have all these quote unquote alternatives to Chinese rare earth dominance that are beginning to emerge. But when you really peel back the layers of them, in so many cases, they still depend on Chinese equipment for processing or Chinese inputs or Chinese partners or Chinese technology. Um, and that's a really scary global control. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's a global control that has military ramifications, but also has them across strategic industries. And where China has already used it for coercive effect. 10 yeah. years ago, in the Sinkaku dispute, China Stop. used rare earth dominance, yeah, to force Japan's hand. And it's been 10 years. And only now are we writing headlines of, oh, wait, what happens if China does the same thing to us? So it's interesting you asked in that way, Emily. So somebody texted me a question, say, would they actually cut off rare earths to the US? And if so, what would the ramifications be? What would it sort of play it out, game theory uh, for us or, or game it out and say, all right, they cut us off, we throw a fit, we then send in a, I don't know, aircraft carrier around Taiwan. They sort of, is that a potential catalyst for a greater escalation? Yes. Yes, and I think rare earths are one of the really critical things to monitor for accidental or whatever kind of escalation. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, it raises the question of how much our hands are tied without rare earths input. And yeah. also raises the question, this gets back to the um, clean energy point of, it's, it's not only rare earths. China, that's not the only trump card in sure. terms of the critical input thing that China can play. Uh, increasingly, all of the range of strategic emerging industries have their own material inputs that they rely on. If you look at electric vehicle batteries, that's cobalt. Where is most of the world's cobalt produced? It's in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Who exports most of the DRC's cobalt? It's China. Um, Graphite, you get a similar question, like across these inputs. And so, you know, this happens if China pulls rare earths, but what if China pulls something else? Or what if it says, well, you'd better stop your escalation because then you don't get to make any electric vehicle batteries and mm-hmm. US private sector not gonna be super in on that idea. Yep, yep. It's also like the escalation thing is you know, a tactical thing that could happen tomorrow or in a month. But what about the idea that, as you said, we're building this whole new clean energy environment and is all of that based on inputs from China and does that make our entire future energy or industrial sector dependent on Yep. Beijing's inputs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's, I'm getting a lot of questions already, which is, uh, which is great. Uh, so in addition to rare earths, talk to me a little bit about, you've already hinted at sort of the weaponization of the supply chain, but um, you know, one of my prior guests was uh, Kishore Mabubani, the ambassador from our Singapore's ambassador to the United States, as well as ambassador to the United Nations. Sorry, the United Nations, not the United States. Uh, he was president of the UN Security Council, etc. He talked about the weaponization of the dollar um, and saying that, you know, America, through the dominance of the SWIFT network and sort of all these standards, <laughs> sort of the, the international financial standards for, for movement of money and having the international dollar sort of reserve currency um, has created a backlash where people are now worried and upset. Is there any viable alternative that you can see or how do the Chinese think about 
this sort of dollar standard. If you're talking about standards, maybe there's a different standard they'd like to have. And, and, and how do we think about that? So glad we're back on the standards. <laughs> I figured you would be. <laughs> I think that this goes back in a lot of ways to the, the point we were talking about how there's a new architecture being formed and therefore a new set of standards. And that creates what Beijing would call leapfrog opportunities. The chance to, in the definition of this new set of rules and platforms and networks to challenge the incumbent order. The US developed after World War II the kind of structural standard setting power that you know, to a certain extent parallels that that China is working to develop now, although there are also core differences there we can talk about as useful. Um, and the dollar is part of that. And we tend to focus in a lot of these conversations about whether the dollar's status is challenged by the renminbi, which it may or may not be. But the next beat is what about the new leapfrog standard? For example, what about digital payment systems? Does it matter or matter as much if you have a dollar, if it's China that controls the channel over which transactions take dollars are happening yeah exactly and the dollar obviously that gives some really core advantages but to have the digital payment system that gives not only similar advantages but also the ability to again collect information on every transaction Mm -hmm. and that sounds like one real solid leapfrog yeah yeah. Well, it's interesting. We talked yesterday uh, or previously, we talked about uh, even the size of Alipay versus other systems. So maybe you can share some of that data because <laughs> I think some folks will. Exactly. So if the digital payment system is the competition right now, China is so far ahead. Nothing rivals Alipay. Like, you know, the closest US alternative, maybe like Starbucks cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alipay is growing and it's not only huge, but it's also vertically integrated in terms of other things it feeds into. And it's a really simple question of network effects, um, but there's no, there's no challenger. And once you have that kind of foothold in a network environment, can there be? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because what, what it sounds like you're suggesting, and again, it's based on stuff you and I have talked about before, but this is surveillance capitalism, not at the individual level, but at the global trade level. This is keeping track of every piece of data of every single transaction across every single industry, commodity, et cetera, and having that complete information such that you can pull on certain levers. I mean, is that a fair characterization of what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, that gives complete power. Um, one of the like quotes we talk about, or I point to a lot is this line, um, and now of course I'm forgetting who said it, but from a Chinese source, um, whoever controls information controls the world. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, really, I think, like quite that simple. And then of course, the surveillance capitalism point, like it's also important to point out that the Chinese actors that are deploying this, yes, in some cases they're government entities, in some cases they present as private sector actors. But as we've just seen with the case of Jack Ma, even if they're private sector actors, they are very much under the regulatory control of the Chinese government. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a scary prospect. Um, let's shift gears a little bit to some more of the geopolitical rivalry, some of the U.S.-China flashpoints. Um, two that I'll raise, uh, we can address them in whichever order you prefer, Emily. Uh, the first is the South China Sea, um, and then the second would be space as a domain of competition. Uh, and, you know, 
oh, we're just putting up satellites for communications. It's fine, right? It's a civil. It's this, this is completely non-military. Uh, yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> um, and so uh, love to have your thoughts on both of those areas. Maybe let's start with space. Okay. Is like when you see, when you read like Chinese discussions of military civil fusion, the area they point to as the paragon, like the pillar example, both of military civil fusion as a concept and of China's progress within it is space. Mm-hmm. Generally within space, it's Beidou. There is zero question that this is an area that China sees as competitive, as an emerging domain, and as one that is to be used for coercive effect, both militarily and commercially. Mm-hmm. It's, and it has all the stories, right? It has the idea of an information infrastructure that's going to be hugely influential. It has the element of China being able to benefit from international interactions to obtain technologies that allow it an edge. Um, and it has, of course, the dual use nature of Chinese space systems being designed to permit both military and civilian operations. And then even on the civilian side to be used to establish some kind of coercive power. Yep. Very disturbing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's the rosy picture right there. Yep. And then, you know, I'm wondering if there's any possibility of, and again, I think I have my own answer, but I'd love to hear yours, sort of the idea of potential cooperation on some aspect of space, meaning you know, space junk. They're responsible for 25% of the junk running around from that anti-satellite test that they had uh, years ago. Um, that could ruin it for them too, right? I mean, so is there a possibility of any joint cooperative endeavor for certain areas there? I really want to be able to say yes, right? Like there should be, but A, China weaponizes cooperation, which means you know taking advantage of integration to obtain technology at low cost or to ensure, of course, that there are asymmetric regulatory standards. So China makes a promise with respect to say space junk, we do too, we're bound by that promise. China does whatever it wants. And that's been the case for decades. That's like the story of the WTO and China's place in the WTO. It's the story of environmental agreements between the two parties. All yeah. of these areas where there should be cooperation. And of course, you know, in critical areas, like it's gonna be very difficult to make global progress on any of these questions of international commons unless China does cooperate. But the problem, like, I guess my answer is yes, there's room for cooperation, but that can't happen until we exist in a structural environment where China is held in control. And right now- Where they're not in control. Where where the the international rules are in control, say. They're being held accountable. They haven't gamed the international systems the way they are now, such that they get away with taking advantage of the systems and the benefits they derive from participating in them without making good on their corresponding obligations. Sure, or even where the international community passes judgment. I mean, they pass judgment in the Spratly Islands or the South China Sea. The Philippines say, listen, you, you know, the international courts ruled. <laughs> China can't be here. They can't be doing this. This is, and yet they just don't care. Exactly. And that's why the South China Sea example is so critical here, right? Because it just, it shows that our responses are so tactical and so out to lunch. We think we're going to take that case to an international tribunal and then China's going to change its actions. Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> I mean, obviously, right? 
yeah, the data suggests otherwise. Um, what about Taiwan? Uh, given that we're in the vicinity of the South China Sea, let's just slide up uh, north there a little bit in the in the waters uh, to what I really do believe is a massive potential flashpoint uh, that seems to be coming to a head sooner rather than later. Um, and I'm curious if you can share some of your thoughts there. I mean, Taiwan is so important and it's such an inflection point and it's at such risk. Um, we saw this, this summer Hong Kong was occupied and the international community did, did not respond and still has not responded in any real substantive way. Now it's very clear that Taiwan is on the chopping block. There's obvious you know, military threat that as you said, could lead to escalation, but the risk to China, to Taiwan extends so far beyond that. Taiwan depends on Chinese markets. Uh -huh. Beijing has carefully invested in Taiwanese media. Taiwan depends on Chinese tourists. There is such dependence in economic and political areas. And meanwhile, China goes out of its way to ensure that Taiwan does not have a voice in the international system, yep. which would allow it to, again, protect itself with international norms or architectures. And so like right now, what we're seeing is an absolute failure of US response. Um, some sign of you know, military tools of resolve, but no effort to provide the kind of economic and political support that would be necessary to do what has to be done to ensure that Taiwan actually has a future moving forward and isn't just on this gradual path of takeover or occupation by Beijing. And I mean, all of these things were circling around, like the space question, the Taiwan question, the South China Sea question, they're all individual flashpoints, they're all individual battles, but in every case, the only way these can be resolved is by systemic competition, is for the US and its allies and partners to get together and to say, we, none of these can be addressed on their own. Mm -hmm. We need to actually use the existing leverage we have over the international architecture and get together and to make sure that China can't keep taking advantage of everything. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna throw another wrinkle into this. Uh <laughs> this neatly ironed story. Uh, Xinjiang, um, let's talk about human rights and sort of global standards and how that make, is that possibly a flashpoint, right? I mean, look, Taiwan obviously could be a flashpoint. Are Americans willing to escalate for a Muslim minority in Western China that they have no potential interaction with? I mean, I, I don't want to be too cynical on the American psyche, but you know, Really, would we do anything about that? And a year ago, I would have said absolutely no, which is such a tragedy. Mm -hmm. This is like maybe the only thing on which I'm optimistic. There has been more substantive reaction to the genocide in Xinjiang um, and reaction you know, that's industrial, like withhold release orders, than at least I could ever have expected. Okay. Maybe that's just what's gonna wake us up. Obviously it has to be more than you know, talking about tomatoes and Xinjiang's. Um, yeah, yeah. But like one of the cases, you know, we at Horizon have been looking at a lot recently and it dovetails neatly with um, your pre previous question is the solar supply chain and its connections to Xinjiang. Um, and we did a lot of work on the definite red flags and indicators in association with forced labor um, on the part of polysilicon producers and then other upstream and downstream players in the solar supply chain in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is, that's an emerging foundational industry, a core focus of the Biden administration. Maybe Xinjiang therefore becomes precisely the catalyst we need 
to get together as an international community and find alternatives to China. Because it's so stark, because you're saying, wait, we're building renewable energies on slave labor. That can't happen. Yeah, we'd like to believe not, right? I mean, uh, so it sounds like you're, not to make it political, it's all dance delicately, it sounds like you're positive on sort of the Biden administration leaning in the right way here. Is that is that a fair statement? Yes. At least for Xinjiang. I, all right, we'll keep with Xinjiang and then we'll go broader to China generally. I mean, I am like by nature a pessimist probably, um, but there are some really strong indications. Um, and maybe this is broader, so maybe I'm already jumping the gun and going broader, but as I see it, the really phenomenal possibility of the Biden administration is two parts. First, the ability to marshal allies and partners in multilateral action. And second, the ability to integrate the domestic and international policy. Because China is such a threat. We also have so many challenges domestically, except of course that there's almost perfect overlap between the two of them. These are like at the heart of these issues are really the same things. It's infrastructure, it's defining a new world order, it's opportunity, um, it's industry. And it seems like the Biden administration actually might be oriented towards looking at these together. And if we can do that, then we can bring to bear all of these enduring advantages of the US that might in some ways resolve the asymmetry between the two sides. Um, and of course, that would mean cascading effects in terms of our domestic investment. Like, if we look at the need to build infrastructure and the China threat through the same lens, that's going to shape the kind of infrastructure we build with what inputs to what end. Yep. yep. But that's necessary. Um, so, a huge possibility there. Of yep. course, the fear is that we do the reverse, that yep. we're so, we deprioritize China because we're so swamped with domestic. Yes. And if we do that, we don't solve anything. We don't solve climate change. We don't solve yeah. polarization. Yeah. You know, one of the areas that obviously I think is a real possibility and that the United States has a, a real opportunity here is to revitalize the innovation engine through basic research and development and, and sort of science, sort of the original inspirational sort of 1940s, 50s, 60s, we're going to invest and change the world, which we did. And it comes with a little lag and it requires some longer term thinking, et cetera. Um, but one of the things I find concerning, and I want to see if we can get some of your thinking here is look I'm down the hall from my office at Harvard was a chemistry professor who was apprehended right arrested because of ties to Wuhan and setting up an undisclosing capital and likewise across the river at Boston University and likewise so there's clearly a concerted infiltration of science and research if you will that has been orchestrated on the part of the Chinese. I'm curious from your perspective, looking at Chinese language sources, et cetera, how do I make sense of that? I love this question. This is the perfect story or yet another perfect story of China's weaponization and integration. We, two key factors in our global like S&T environment that crop up a lot when you look at Chinese discourse. The first is that with globalization, there's relatively easy access to innovation. Um, the commercial innovation ecosystem or the academic innovation ecosystem, very open. You can acquire so much of the basic research, um, 
that is also very expensive and high risk through low risk, cheap um, partnerships. One B. The second B is that so much of the technological contest right now is not about the basic. It's about applying innovation and applying it with scale. It doesn't, you know, the 5G standard that wins or that prevails, it's probably about like user base and its size, not about how great the technology is. And the same goes really for all of these new emerging information infrastructures. Um, and this has clearly shaped Chinese scientific and technological policy and in a way that is very different and is not understood. When you look at Chinese investments in research and development, despite whatever they say about indigenous innovation, there is far more investment in applied research um, and in experimental research, which is like one beat past that than there is in basic research. And to a degree that's really like the flip of the United States. And when there are so many Chinese sources that talk about how basic research is expensive and it's high risk and it's not the contest of the moment. So go out, go into the global environment, take the fruits of that, bring it home, scale it, digest it, absorb it, digest it, re-innovate it, yeah. is the phrase that comes up, and then win through scale, which China already has as an enduring advantage in spades. Yeah. So the idea is just steal it. Take it. It exists. Someone else did at the time. Boeing designed the next cargo transport plane or the next fighter jet. And so we just go get the plans. Like why bother yeah. doing anything else? Yes. And of course the default US reaction in what is clearly, because we are in a scientific and technological contest, but the default US reaction is basic research. Put more money into basic research early on. Um, and of course we're inclined towards open innovation ecosystems um, and dual use. And that means that we're pouring our resources into precisely the stage of the competition that China feels it can access and not into the stage of the competition that China feels is determinative, um, yeah. which is the applied and the experimental and scaling. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to take a brief pause here, Emily, to ask you a question that's sort of uh, seemingly unrelated, but maybe not. Um, one of the th great things about this webinar series is and th some of the feedback I've got is people love the book recommendations from the guests. So. Do you have a particular book that you're quite fond of that you would recommend to folks here uh, to read? And it need not be about technology standards or it could just be anything. So is there, is there a favorite book that you'd recommend? And I'm gonna ask you the same thing around movie or miniseries. Okay, so this is like the most difficult question ever. Um, I should caveat that I read almost exclusively fiction. Um, so I'm yeah. not gonna be your recommendation for a geopolitical book. Um, I'll go with Emil Zola, The Human Beast. Okay, The Human Beast. Um, which, I mean, you know, brilliant, gripping, um, and like probably for me, hugely influential, but also captures in a really remarkable way human irrationality and particularly irrationality aggravated by times of flux. Um, which when we're talking right now about a new world taking shape and what that means for societies, obviously that's informed as much by these more macro dynamics as it is by individuals' reactions to them. Sure, sure. Okay, good suggestion. We'll take note of that. And then how about a movie or miniseries? Um, I'm going to go with anything John Le Carre. Um, okay. So most recently, The Little Drummer Girl. Okay. Also, The Night Manager is brilliant. 
but now because I'm making confessions about like fiction versus nonfiction, I should also admit that whatever insanity of the past 12 months have taken place also led me to discover reality television. No. Oh. Deep yep. dark hole. <laughs> That's great. I'm find my way out of it. But yeah. if you really need your brain to melt, fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've gotten myself hooked on this series on Netflix called The Hundred on the recommendation of uh, actually a, uh, a military professional um, here in the United States, a senior ranking one suggested, hey, why don't you start watching The Hundred, Vikram? And I did. And, uh, you know, it's got nuclear war. It's got AI dominance. It's got, you know, tribal warfare. It's got, you know, you know, loss of food systems. It's got space technology, sort of all of these big concepts are wrapped into one. And again, I can't get myself out of that rabbit hole right now because I'm like 70% of the way through the whole thing on Netflix. But anyway, um, so part of the reason I asked that question is, um, I recently watched uh, with my children a movie called Think Like a Dog. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it, um, but if you haven't, uh, I would. So have you seen it? Just out of curiosity. Beginning of it. Okay. So it's produced by a Chinese company and it happens to have a brilliant Chinese technologist who has a great application of, you know, unique technologies. Uh, there's a Indian venture capitalist spoiler trying to steal things and sort of, it sort of struck me as soft power 101. Is this something you're watching? Is this something you're paying attention to? Is this part of this sort of full spectrum great power rivalry that exists? And, or am I just finding areas of potential uh, concern where I shouldn't be, where I should just watch the movie? I mean, 100%, right? And this goes back to the idea of like shaping the information environment and China's idea of information dominance being not only about collecting superior data, but also influencing the information world in which we live, which in turn shapes really concrete reactions. And there's been this progression that you know flares up occasionally in the news, but probably isn't documented super well. It starts with China investing in, for example, Hollywood, um, in media, in social media. And now we're seeing that evolve into China actually proliferating its own. We can call this like you know, investing in technologies and then proliferating standards if we will, but proliferating its own like this movie, television shows, mm -hmm. TikToks of the world. Um, to inform how we think about things. And that's so foundational. It's so competitive. And Beijing is able to do this in a very centralized, coordinated way, whether it's in terms of the movie you're watching or in terms of like what the international narrative about China's COVID response is. Yeah. And we, with our fragmented media information narrative landscape, um, which has of course long been one of our strengths um, because it's about openness and it's about transparency, we are at this huge asymmetric disadvantage. Um, and I think like in general, there's probably no better space than this information space to understand the asymmetries at play and how China takes advantage of the global system. Um, and possibly there's also none that's more determinative. It doesn't matter how much is realized about what China does or how much they force the cards if we live in an information environment where they're the savior. Um, and they're able to convince either the movie watchers or the crowds at Davos or the audiences in the developing countries where they're quote unquote investing of that. There's in Chinese discussion of 
information warfare. Um, there's this idea which often comes up, which is that in the US we see information warfare as conventional warfare enabled by technology, whereas China sees information warfare as warfare for information. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like the next beat of what you do with that information is that in turn, you're able to decide the whole world and then you win. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, you know, you saw years ago, it was Top Gun 2 or, you know, oh, we can't have that patch. We can't, sort of, we got to change that China doesn't want. They're funding this. They're going to change that story. Okay. Now there's like these proactive stories emerging and, you know, I'm watching and again, my children didn't think anything of it. And I'm sure slowly in the back of their mind, they're being, oh, the Chinese are smart technologists. They're capable. They're they're looking out for humanity. Like they're very good people, (laughs) right? And that's sort of slowly getting, you know, into the back of people's minds subconsciously. Yeah. And it's just all, I mean, it's amazing how much that progression and that approach parallels the rare earths or any other case. This shouldn't be the same, but it's exactly the same model. You start off with Hollywood depends on Chinese money. We depend on rare earths. So Hollywood's not going to write in a Chinese character that Beijing doesn't want. Boeing's not going to act in a way that China doesn't want. And then once you have that position, that's when you start proliferating the standards. Um, Whether that's a standard for processing rare earths at a very tactical level that lets you lock in your advantage or for 5G because all the telecoms companies are dependent on you or if that's now you control the distribution channels for media. Yeah. So here's another question that came in and seems appropriate to ask it at this point, which is how does this play out? What happens? Literally, where does this go? Does the US wake up and say, hey, hold on a second. This is all related. This is great power rivalry and we need to acknowledge it as such. And we need to reshore all of the supply chains that are vulnerable, whether it's antibiotics, whether it's vitamin C, whether it's rare earths, whether go down the list, whether we can domesticate our supply of chips uh, or, or what have you. Um, because not only is it vulnerable if it's in China, it's vulnerable if it's in the Chinese ecosystem of influence, which is much broader than just China. So it's not just that the chips are there, that actually Taiwan Semi is based in Taiwan. <laughs> and actually, you know, there, there may be other dynamics at work here. So what's the catalyst that gets the wake up moment in the United States so that we say, okay, this is where we are. Yeah, and it should have been COVID. Um, maybe that was the catalyst and it's just been a slow acting one. But I mean, really we have two scenarios. Like there's a first scenario in which case COVID, Xinjiang, the accumulation of all of them, the Biden administration, I don't know, um, wakes up, realizes systemic competition. Mm-hmm. And if we realize systemic competition, then we start investing in infrastructure, or architectures defensively with supply chains, like you said, but also offensively to set international rules to scale the emerging platforms networks. Um, And we do all of this with allies and partners. And at the same time, we reform the system of international organizations and international rule setting so that China's held accountable. Um, We pull China's permanent normal trade relations status. We repurpose NATO to be a industrial competitive vehicle uh, focused on China. And we, so we wake up, we realize there's a competition, China's a threat, and that the only way to address it is through global systems, defensively and offensively. The alternative, of course, is that either we don't wake up or we do, but we keep fighting tactically. Not strategically. Keep thinking we can compartmentalize cooperation, collaboration, 
working laterally, any single one of those is, will be a failure. Um, so we really need like this perfect alignment of yeah. a kind of strategic competition. I'm not sure the US has ever engaged in before. Okay, so I wanna go back to the COVID comment. Uh, COVID should have been a wake up call is what you said to sort of this, the nature of this rivalry. Um, why? You start off with the very clear um, status of China as a bad actor. No matter what you think of the whole COVID backstory, clearly China covers it up yeah. um, and allows it to spread internationally. So China's a bad actor, people die. The economy plummets, huge global implications. That's beat one. Beat two, of course, is that China spread the, adds insult to injury, spreads a disinformation campaign, um, increases global assertiveness, occupies Hong Kong, threatens Taiwan, uses this opportunity of global chaos to be more aggressive internationally. I think, you know, pandemics, global health, these are supposed to be cooperative areas. China shows that they're not, that it's gonna remain a bad actor and it's gonna use that in order to be a stronger competitor. Yep. So we're not only dealing with someone irresponsible, we're dealing with someone who's out to get us. It's interesting you didn't go in the direction I thought you might, which was, and then of course the World Health Organization, which was in theory, a multilateral cooperative endeavor that should have been in theory objective which there's a lot of evidence to suggest they weren't. Yes, thank you. And because that's the other beat is that the way this plays out shows how far ahead China is without our realizing it. The, you know, they have the WHO in their pocket. They have pharmaceutical supply chains, PPE supply chains in their pocket. It really revealed the board in one particular, particular domain, but in a way that applies across domains um, with us way farther behind than I think most conventional analyses would have predicted. Yeah. Okay. We're running out of time, but I want to get this question in because I think this is a fascinating one that was just texted to me here. Um, Russia, you read Chinese language uh, information. Uh, what is the domestic thinking or the Chinese thinking around the role of Russia in this sort of rivalry? One can imagine. In fact, Kishore Mabubani suggested that in the long run, Russia's in uh, similar, they have their interests aligned with the US. And actually, you know, that a U.S.-Russia partnership could enter the cards here in a 20, 30-year view. In the meantime, it doesn't seem that way. It seems like Russia's looking to be the spoiler and sort of be the sort of agitator, if you will. How does China view the Russian dynamic with the U.S.? I think the core thing here is so there's so much potential, right? To drive a wedge between Russia and China would be remarkable. It would give the U.S. is spoiler ally, it kind of, or at least partner, it kind of needs. It would um, you know, throw off so much of what China does through Russia or enabled by Russia. But the point, and what I, you know, you'll see probably stressed most consistently in Chinese discourse, is that the U.S. hasn't made that effort, and therefore has lost the opportunity. And it seems very unlikely that opportunity is going to come back to the U.S. So even you know, despite all the very clear divides and very clear, like recognized frictions between the two players, and that Russia doesn't want to be a junior partner, there's yeah. not really any chance of that relationship 
living without, you know, the sort a sort of U.S. action that might at this point be too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I think you're right. We have this dynamic where they just almost love being the spoiler <laughs> and they just want to mess with the U.S. And something. I don't know how to make sense of it myself in that grand scheme of things. Um, so let's let's close on this last question here that I have for you, Emily, which is, what are you really worried about in the short run? Meaning standards are not going to get implemented overnight. Maybe they get influenced slowly and they accumulate. Maybe it's another, you know, maybe it's Taiwan. Maybe it, sort of what's the immediate worry that you have relating to U.S.-China sort of rivalry um, in the short run? And then obviously the longer run, I think that we, we think there's a, there's, a, there's a grander challenge at work here, which is way of life and sort of global trade and sort of setting the rules of the road. But in the short run, what's your, what's your biggest worry? The really not awesome answer to this is that, you know, my biggest worry is that we make all the wrong calls now that we, we lose um, the long game. But I mean, like the fundamental underlying thing there is that the domestic picture is so scary and so bad and that overlaps so perfectly with China. And the present, it, it's really the present is the perfect opportunity. Um, we still have just enough time. We have all the right pressures. If we don't get this, if we don't, you know, if we don't take advantage of the moment, then we're gonna lose. And so there are all these like short-term contests I see lining up, which are just determinative of that. So for example, we need Taiwan as an ally. Taiwan is the asymmetry, one of the few points of asymmetry that can let us redress China's. It hits a vulnerability. It has technology we need. It is a, a robust democracy um, with a sterling public health record at that. Yeah. We can't lose Taiwan. Um, so that's like an immediate chip. And we also can't lose that wake up call. Um, build back better. We need infrastructure. We need it now. We yep. need industry. We need it now. We can't do that in a way that builds on Chinese slave labor. Um, we can't do that in a way that means it's just Chinese companies who are building back the US. So that's a chip like we can't lose. Um, all of which is to say, I guess it's not that like there's this one, you know, terrible future vision or immediate vision um, of really bad escalation that keeps me up at night. It's the idea that the chips are in the process of falling and we might not take the actions we need to make sure that they land on the right side. Okay, so I'm going to end that, Emily, with viewing it as an optimistic statement you just made, which is we can win (laughs) (laughs) and we just need to do the right things right now domestically uh, with our infrastructure, uh, internationally with supporting uh, those who are in our ecosystem, uh, including Taiwan. And uh, I love the optimism you brought to this conversation. So. (laughs) Or at least the way you ended it. I'm going to call you an optimist. Might be the first time anyone's ever said that to me. <laughs> I figured as much, but I wanted to end that way. So uh, thank you, Emily. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for the great insights. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversations and, and this, was, this one was no exception. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash mancharamani. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify.